I left you kind of uh, in a unique place last Wednesday night. Uh, We are in the Middle Ages. If you're just joining us, we're kind of going through church history. And uh, the reason you do that is because um, if you don't learn from the past, you have no concept of where you are in the present, and you'll have no idea where you're headed for the future. And you look back and you learn from people and what they do in theology and what they do spiritually and personally so that you don't make those mistakes. And we're up on a huge mistake. By the time you get to the Reformation, we're about 500 years from the Reformation right now. Uh, We're in the year uh, 1000. And um, we're about 500 years away from Luther, um, about 400 years away from one of my favorite guys, Johann Hus. Uh, Love Hus. And we'll talk about him in the Waldensians and uh, the Anabaptists, and uh, all of those folks. We'll get to Calvin, and we'll get to Zwingli, and we'll get to Knox. But they're about 500, 400, 500 years away. You're in the middle right now of the Middle Ages. And uh, all the reformers are going to look back, and they're going to say the church, the Roman church, took a wrong turn in history. But where did it? the debate is, where did it take the wrong turn? Where did it just get really off? And that's the debate. A lot of church historians will debate and say, well, you have to go all the way back. You can go to Constantine. And when Constantine kind of set up and he attempted to rule the church and be the emperor at the same time, it kind of, well, that certainly contributed to some of it. Um, And then others will come and say, no, you've got to wait until you get to Gregory the first or Leo the first. And we talked about them and how they've established that uh, the bishop at Rome was in the line of succession of Peter. And that's certainly um, one of those debatable places. Some will come and say, well, it was Leo the third when Leo the third did what he did. Now I'll talk about that. We've already talked about it, but I'll catch you back up. Many are going to say that it happened on January the 28th, 1077, in the snows of Canosa. And you say, well, what happened next week? No, um, I'm going to tell you about it tonight. I'm going to talk about that tonight. Uh, I personally believe there were a lot of wrong turns that kept leading the church further and further and further away and off course. You know, in a, in a jet, when you fly in a, a commercial jet, that plane has a computer system that is constantly checking and adjusting, readjusting because the winds are blowing on it and, you know, all the factors that go into that. It's constantly readjusting. If they put in a coordinates, if you fly from here to Hong Kong, if you fly from here to Australia, like you do every couple of weeks, and they are just a number off on their coordinates, you're going to end up at the bottom of the Indian Ocean somewhere. You know, just because by the time you get from here, just one simple little thing, by the time you get from San Francisco down to Melbourne, you're going to be so far off course all that whole way. 
Well, that's what's happening to the church. They keep making these little turns, and as they do, these little turns take them further and further. As the years go by, they get further and further away from Scripture. They get further off course. And that's what's happening. So let me kind of reset the scene now, and let me get you to uh, the castle at Canossa. You've got two major players. You've got the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, who is Henry IV. There he is in the dark right there. No, there he is right there. Uh, there he is, and you have got the other main figure in all of this is Pope Gregory VII. And these two guys are going to clash. Now, if you go back uh, just 200 years prior, um, Charlemagne really sets this whole thing up. Leo III and Charlemagne really set this whole thing up. Uh, Charlemagne is this brilliant warrior, this great administrator. Leo III sees and notices just how great he is. And he goes up on Christmas Day of the year 800, and he crowns Charlemagne, and he whispers into his ear, you are Imperator Augustus. You are the Emperor Augustus. And what he does is he resurrects that old title from the old Caesars of the old Roman Empire. And now you have a new emperor, not of the old Roman Empire, but now of the Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne's a great leader. He dies. And his sons kind of squabble over what's going to happen. And you've got about 200 years of this. In that 200-year period, what you have is you have a lot of these princes that begin to rise up under the king of the Holy Roman Empire, and they have great deals of land, and you have the rise of feudalism. And I shared with you that feudalism comes from the little word fee, that if you live on this great landed estate of this Lord, you pay a fee to live there. You work the land, you care for all the livestock, and you pay a fee for that. You pay, you pay rent in a, in a sense. And you also, for 40 days out of the year, are to give military service to the Lord of that estate. Well, you have the rise of all of this, and uh, as you have the rise of that, and all of these people across all of Europe now paying fees to these lords of these big estates, the church happens to be on these pieces of property. Well, what are you going to do with that? Well, these lords say the church owes us a fee. They're going to have to pay. Just like everybody else, the church will have to pay. Now, let me tell you, Rome had a huge problem with that. And as if that's not bad enough, now these lords of these great landed estates come up with an idea that's called investiture, which essentially means if this church is on my property, I get to choose who's going to be the priest there. I get to make the decision who's going to be bishop in this place. Rome had a huge problem with that. And it festered for about 200 years until a guy by the name of Hildebrand. Now, that may be why he's always such a bad mood. But he changes his name when he becomes Pope and he becomes Gregory VII. And he says, I'm going to put an end to this. By the way, he's the same guy that put an end to priests being married. 
he, um, um, he says, I'm going to put an end to certain things. And one of the things was this whole deal of somebody choosing who would be priest. He said, nobody has a right to determine the pastor of a church or the priest of a church or the bishop of a church other than the church itself, other than the bishop of Rome, essentially. And so Henry IV bucked that, and he said, no, I've got that right. Um, And all of my princes in the Holy Roman Empire have that right. So Gregory VII sent him a, a, a note that said, you will appear before me in Rome at a synod where you will be tried for simony. Now, simony is the purchasing of an ecclesiastical office. And what was happening was this. I mean, all these churches say, this is my kingdom right here. And I'm the Lord of all this landed estate. And this is the church. And the one of you who comes and says, you'll give me the biggest amount of money, I'll put your brother as, as the priest or the bishop of my church. Well, that's what was going on. And so he says, you're going to come to the synod here in Rome. He's telling this now to the Holy Roman Emperor. You're going to come here to Rome before me to a synod, and you're going to answer for the crime of simony. Well, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire wrote him back and said, no, I am having a diet. Now, you've got councils, and you've got synods, and you've got diets, and those are all just the gathering of an ecclesiastical body to to do whatever they're going to do. And so he says, I'm holding a diet at Worms. Now, don't confuse this because in 500 years, Luther's going to go to a diet at Worms. 500 years earlier, uh, he says, I'm holding a diet at Worms, and you, Pope Gregory, are coming to stand before me because we've got questions about how you became pope. So the pope writes back, and he says, no, you're going to come and stand before me. And and Henry says, nope, you're going to come and stand before me. And he says, nope, you're going to come and stand before me. Nope, you're going to come. And it's like two five-year-olds going back and forth and back and forth until Pope Gregory decides, I've had enough of this, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to excommunicate you. So on February the 22nd, 1076, Pope Gregory, uh, Pope Gregory VII writes, and listen to what he says, uh, this, this is recorded. I want you to listen now to how he states this. On behalf of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On behalf, he's writing on behalf of God right here is what he's doing. He's speaking on behalf of God. Now, th- that's setting a precedence in the church. By the way, God couldn't be here, so I'm speaking for God right now, and this is what God would say. On behalf of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by your power and authority, so you see what he's he's doing? What I'm doing is essentially what God would do. I denied to Henry, King Henry, son of the emperor Henry, who with unheard of pride has risen up against your church, the government of the whole kingdom of the Germans and of Italy. So he's taking in the whole of Europe, Italy and all of the Germanies, They were all small states and France. All of that's wrapped up in this. I absolve all Christians from the bond of any oath that they have made or shall make to him. In other words, if you had gone to Henry and said, I need to borrow $100,000 and I promise you I'll pay it back, you've been absolved of it. 
You don't have to do it. Anything you've promised Henry up to this point, you don't have to do it now. Pope said you don't have to. And Pope was speaking on behalf of God, by the way. I absolve all Christians from the bond of any oath they have made or shall make to him. And this, number two, I forbid anyone to serve him as king. In other words, when he tries to raise an army to come down here and to kill me, you don't have to serve him. I forbid anyone to serve him as king, for it is fitting that because he has striven to diminish the honor of your church, he himself should forfeit the honor that he seems to possess. Finally, because he has disdained to show the obedience of a true Christian and has not returned to the God whom he forsook by communing with excommunicated men, by as you are my witness, disdaining my advice, and I sent him for his salvation and by attempting to rend your church and separating himself from it, by your authority, I bind him with excommunication. In other words, he's going straight to hell. So now you see what the Pope has done here? And, all, and listen, all of Europe is watching this. All of Europe is listening to this. All of these princes that have these great landed estates that are very wealthy men that have all of these people who have to give 40 days out of the year military service, that's where Henry's army comes from. They're all looking at Henry, and they all go to Henry and say, oh, Henry, this is bad stuff. I got people here. They're all, all my people on my lands. They're all upset about this. They don't want to go to hell. And by the way, Henry, I don't want to go to hell either. Um, and you're going to have to do something about this. You're going to have to go to the Pope. You're going to have to get this thing straightened out. You're going to have to get this thing resolved. You're going to have to go down there and ask for forgiveness. You've got to get absolution. Something here has got to give. We can't keep going like this. Through all of the summer, that happened in February, this covers news travels, this covers all of Europe, and so through the summer and into the fall, all of these princes of the Holy Roman Empire keep coming to Henry until they finally come to Henry and they tell him this, if you don't get this straightened out, by February the 22nd of 1077, we are going to remove you as the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and we're going to put somebody else in your place. So now, what is Henry going to do? What is Henry going to do? All of his princes. This is, these are all of his generals. This is where all of his money comes from. Uh, all of their people make up his army. What's he going to do? They're going to replace him now. So in January of 1077, Henry sets out for the Pope. He knows I've got to do something. I've, I've got to go and meet with the Pope, and uh, I can't take an army with me because he, he'll think I'm coming to get me. So he takes some guides, and he takes some personal attendants, and they set off for the Pope, but the Pope happens to be in Canossa, which is in the Italian Alps in January. Crazy time to go. Crazy time to go. And so they travel. And on January the 28th, 1077, he eventually gets to the gates of the castle of Canossa where Gregory is residing in retreat. The Pope is there. And here's a picture of it right there. There he is. He's banging on the door at the gates of the castle of Canossa. 
And he comes not in the robes of a king, he's barefoot. And he's in what you call a hair shirt. It's woven out of goat's hair. It is basically what ascetic monks will wear. So here is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, not in all the regalia of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, but in the garb of an ascetic monk, barefoot, and when he arrives on January the 28th, 1077, he arrives in a blizzard. And so they send word to the Pope, and they get word to him, the emperor is here. The emperor is here in the snow, standing barefoot in the garb of an ascetic monk, and he is waiting for entrance to ask for your forgiveness. And Gregory Seventh says, no. No. Not today. And so the second day comes. And on the second day, they bang on the door of the castle of Canossa. And they go to Gregory VII and they say, here is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He stands there just with a few aides, no army, barefoot in the garb of an ascetic monk. And he seeks through tears to have entrance so he can beg your forgiveness. And Gregory says, no, let him wait. Day three comes. And he bangs on the door. And they go to Gregory and they say, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire is here and he's barefooted and he's in the garb of an ascetic monk and he's freezing out there and he wants entrance to beg your forgiveness. And Gregory says, no, let him wait. And the people who are the attendants of Gregory say, You can't do this. This looks bad. And so he says, all right, you let him in. And they let him in. And they say that when he sees the Pope, he falls on his knees and he begs for forgiveness. But before the Pope forgives him, he makes him swear. I'm going to read you what he makes him swear. He comes to him and he says, you will swear this. I, Henry, king, promise to satisfy the grievances of my archbishops, bishops, dukes, counts, and other princes of Germany or their followers may have, or any of their followers that they may have against me within the time set by Pope Gregory and in accordance with his conditions. Now, what he's just said there is this. If anybody's got a gripe with you, you better make it right. If I'm prevented by any sufficient cause from doing this within that time, I will do it as soon after that as I may. Further, if Pope Gregory shall desire to visit Germany or any other land on his his journey thither, his sojourn there and his return thence, he shall not be molested or placed in danger or captivity by me or anyone whom I can control. This shall apply to the escort, to the retinue, 
and to all who come and go in his service, everybody that's with him, nobody's going, nobody's going to lay a hand on him. Moreover, I will never enter into any plan for hindering or molesting him, but I will aid him in good faith and to the best of my ability if anyone else opposes him. Boy, this guy, Gregory, you're hearing what he's saying? If there's anybody that comes to me and says they've got an upset with you, you'd better settle it satisfactorily. Beyond that, I have free journey, and everybody that's with me all across the Holy Roman Empire, I am never to be touched. None of my people are to ever be touched. And beyond that, if anybody touches me, you got to come and straighten them out. And he swears it. And he squares it, and when he does that, then the Pope takes him to the chapel at Canossa in the snow, and the chapel at Canossa happens to be the chapel of St. Nicholas. You think it's cold, so, you know, it's just kind of appropriate, isn't it? St. Nicholas, you think you're at the North Pole. And so he goes in to the chapel there at Canossa, St. Nicholas Chapel, and there the Pope now, performs a mass, gives the element to um, Henry, and in doing so, saves him from hell and now makes it where he can go to heaven along with it, everybody else in the Holy Roman Empire. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Because now grace is conveyed through a man. And this whole thing of who do I go to to confess my sin begins to be established. You go to the bishop. You go to the priest. You go and you confess. And when you go and confess to the priest, it is through the priest that comes your forgiveness. Well, that is exactly what you've got. Henry does that. He is forgiven. He's absolved. The Pope has a banquet that night. They say that Henry was so embarrassed and humiliated that he didn't touch his food, but he sat there and he dug his fingers into the wood planks of the table where they were seated. He left as soon as he could within the next day or two, and he leaves, but the bad blood between Henry and Gregory exists. It, uh, it doesn't get any better. In fact, it gets worse. And again, Gregory excommunicates Henry. This time, Henry says, I've had it. He raises an army. He goes down to Rome. And there he, uh, in Rome, let me see, he chases the Pope into um, St. Angelo. Right there. Uh, if you ever go to Rome with me, I'll take you and show you this. That was built around, by the way, this was built around, it was the mausoleum of Hadrian. It is on the other side of the Tiber, which is where the Vatican is, and the popes eventually took this when Rome fell, and they built a tunnel underneath 
so that if anyone ever attacks the Vatican through the tunnel, which is exactly what Gregory does, he scurries through the tunnel and he gets into the, the, this fortress that is there that is now called St. Angelo. Uh, and it's, it's really named after Michael because in 590 when the plague was abated in Rome, they say that Michael the archangel appeared on the top of this and took his sword and put it back in the sheath. There's a lot of stories in Rome like that. Um, so that's what happens. He chases him in there, and um, he deposes him as pope, and he goes and gets another guy, and he, he has him appointed pope, and his name is Clement III, and he is the first of what is known as the antipopes. And you say, what are the antipopes? I can't tell you that tonight. That's a whole, that's a whole nother long string of stuff uh, there. But that's what Henry does. It's kind of interesting how all of this happens. But out of this whole thing, you get this thing of confessing. You get this whole thing of how salvation now is going to be conveyed. All of this is going to come out, a lot of it in the Middle Ages. I was going to say next Wednesday night, but maybe the Wednesday night after that, we'll see. I'll tell you, I'll give you um, seven things that uh, come out of all of this uh, that you'll just sit there and you'll shake your head and you'll say, well, where is that in Scripture? Well, where is this in Scripture? They continue to deviate and make these wrong turns. So now let me do this as I want to wrap this up. Let me take you to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, nowhere will you find in the New Testament folks who deviate from the gospel like they do in the churches of Galatia. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, and uh, let me just read the first little bit. The, the churches in Galatia were founded on Paul's first missionary journey. In fact, it was Barnabas and Saul, and in the middle of all that, it becomes Paul and Barnabas and they're going to um, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and all those places you can find this in Acts chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and into 16. You can read it in there. They go and they uh, preach the gospel. People are saved all in the southern region of Galatia, which is the southern part of Turkey today. And churches are formed out of that. And you remember Paul says, hey, let's go back. Let's revisit these. Let's strengthen our brethren in the Lord. Let's go back and see how they're doing. And, of course, there's the parting of the way there between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul goes and he finds Timothy, remember, um, back where he had been stoned and the place where he'd been stoned, he finds this time Timothy. And, and so um, he takes Silas with him and and those churches there in, in, in the region of Galatia are founded and uh, something happens to them. And that's why you get this little epistle to the churches of Galatia. What's happened? The Judaizers come in. Now, the Judaizers are these folks that come in to a church and uh, this, is, this is what they do. Are you saved? Yes, we've trusted Jesus Christ. Oh, that's great, but you've not, you've not, you, you hadn't quite got all of it yet. Uh, that's why we're here. We're here to help you really be saved. It's good that you believe in Christ. That's great. But by the way, let me tell you something. You've got to be circumcised too. Uh, well, we didn't know that. Well, that's why we're here. We're here to tell you. You've, you've got to do this. You've got to be circumcised. Oh, and by the way, that stuff you're eating right there, 
you can't eat that anymore. You got to be kosher. And um, by the way, let me, let me tell you something else. What's coming up is Passover, and you're going to have to go to Passover. You're going to have to do that. So along with Christ, which is great, you got to keep the law of Moses. you got to do this ceremony thing. You've got to do this ritual. You've got to do all these things. You've got to add to it. So that's what they've come into Galatia, into the churches of Galatia, and that's what they've taught them. And so Paul writes the churches of Galatia, most likely from Ephesus, But he writes them and he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men. Men didn't send me down here. He's already now getting on these Judaizers. They've been sent by men. Men, Man didn't send me. Nor through the agency of a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Boy, he, listen, Paul comes out of his side of the ring and he is throwing punches already. Verse 2, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now listen, he's just given you the gospel in verse 4. You see it right there? Look at this. Who gave himself for us uh, for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, do you see that? How did he rescue you? Look at, the, look at the verse. How did he rescue you? He gave himself for your sins. That's how he rescued you. Why did he rescue you? Look at the last of the verse. It was the will of God the Father. That's the grace of God. God's grace. That's why he rescued you. He didn't have to, but he did it because he's a God of grace. And listen, what did he rescue you from? Well, look at the middle of the verse. From this present evil age, this world, from hell, from all of this craziness. That's what he did. He rescued you from your own self. He came and he rescued you from your own sins. He saved you from your sins, rescued you because it was the will of God Verse 6, I am stunned. I'm amazed. I'm in disbelief that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, do you see that right there? A different gospel. There are two words that are going to be used, one right here in verse 6 and one in verse 7. Eteros is this word here, different, right there. For a eteros. It means a, 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 the same, means a different kind. It's kind of hard to explain. It's um, a different gospel. It's, it, it's the same of a different kind. That's, I know that sounds weird, but it's the same of a different kind. Now, let me explain it to you. This is the way you know it. Here it is right here. I am, I am a human. Debbie is a human, but she's a human of a different kind. I'm a male kind of human. She's a female kind of human. That's why I married her. But, (laughs) and she's a good looking one of that kind. Um, That's what that means. You have left for another gospel of a different kind. 
Now watch, he comes in verse 7, which is really, do y'all understand that? Do you see what I'm saying right there? Now he comes in verse 7, he says this, which is really not another. It's not another kind. The word there is alas, and it means this. I'm trying to explain it to you this way. It's, it's, It's not another kind. I'm a human, and Mike is a human, but we're humans of the same kind. I'm a male kind of human. He's a male kind of human. Now, what you say, well, what in the world is being said here is this. Let me tell you the bottom line of what's being said. There's not another gospel of any kind. There's one gospel. In fact, if you look at this, he's making this point. Verse 6, the word gospel is used. Verse 7, the word gospel is used. Verse 8, the word gospel is used. Verse 9, the word gospel is used. Verse 11, the word gospel is used. Five times. Five times right there. In verses 6 through 11, five times he just comes back. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. Because of the grace of God, he has saved us from being lost for eternity. That is the gospel. And there's not another gospel anywhere like that. You can't say, oh, well, here is another book of Jesus. They ain't no more books of Jesus. There's one. There's not another gospel. Well, they, you know, they, they do this and they have that. Listen, that's what he's saying. And that's what I'm saying to you about this whole event in history. How am I forgiven? Do you remember last week I shared with you out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Pope Gregory VII. No, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator, one, and that's Jesus Christ. I got a letter some years ago from a guy who watched me on television in prison I want you to listen to what he said. I met this guy, by the way. I went to prison and spoke to him, and he happened to be there. Uh, he, he will die in Florida prison. He said, Pastor, I'm a sinner and a murderer, guilty of my crimes. I'll die here in prison, but I don't care what happens to me. I only worry about what God will do to me. Can Jesus forgive me? Now, I wrote him, and I told him this story. And I told him, you'll not find forgiveness in any other person but Jesus. I am thankful that when I went to Jesus Christ, he did not leave me at the gate of the kingdom knocking and waiting until he decided I could come in. But immediately, immediately, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John comes, and, or Paul comes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, and he says this, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How are you saved? By faith, through grace, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace, I am saved. 
Not when I go to a person, not when I get to a preacher, not when I get even to a church, but when I get before God, it is through Christ that I'm saved. No media. Listen, let me tell you. Why do we study history? So we don't make these terrible turns like that.